Hi. As always, we appreciate your presence. If you are visiting with us, thank you for coming our way. We hope that you will come back. It's always good to have visitors with us, and we appreciate so much your willingness to come to honor us with your presence. Tonight we're looking at Acts chapter 4, the passage that Gary read a moment ago. And I appreciate Gary reading today. And those who read on a regular basis, we are so appreciative of your willingness to stand before the church and read. To those who lead singing, Jacob and Jared and Brother Billy and all who lead, we're very grateful for you and for all that you do. And I'm very grateful for the good song leaders that we have here and the work that is ongoing. T tonight we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4 and we're going to be talking about the early church and the theme of our study tonight, why was the first century church successful? Because if you read the record, it's evident the early church was a growing church. They grew spiritually and they also grew numerically. And so we might ask the question, what was, what was the ingredient behind their success? I mean, what was it that paved the way for them to reach countless people for the gospel of Christ? So what we want to do is look at Acts chapter 4. I want to call your attention tonight, beginning with verse 32. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now, by way of context. You remember in chapter 2 we have the establishment of the church in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day. The text tells us that some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel. Verse 47 says, The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In the third chapter of Acts, we have a record Peter and John healing a man at the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. And this created quite a controversy among the religious leaders. And so, as you well know, in chapter 4, they were called on the carpet to give an account of how this man had been healed and by what power, what authority did they have in healing this man. And they, in a very blunt way, said, look, this was the result of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And oh, by the way, He is the only one that can save, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so then the record says they commanded them not to preach nor teach in the name of Christ. And Peter and John said, we can't but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Now, with that being said, down in verse 23 and following, we find Peter and John going back and rehearsing the events that had transpired with the other disciples. And the Bible tells us that they prayed to Almighty God that they might have boldness to share the gospel of Christ. And so look at verse 31. The Bible says that when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now look at verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So the first thing that I want to call your attention to, if we were to talk about some of the ingredients that led to the success of the early church, number one, the unification of the church. In other words, 
These folks were united in their mission and in their message. Listen again to what Luke said. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus called James and John, Peter and Andrew to become His disciples? As He began selecting and calling those men that would form His inner circle, and really through their efforts the world would be turned upside down. The Lord Jesus called these men to participate in a common work. Well, what was that? The establishment of the church, and then to evangelize a lost and dying world. So they had, they had unity of heart, didn't they? Now, when we talk about unity in the first century church, to understand that the Lord prayed for unity. You remember in John chapter 17, when Jesus said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for all them that will believe on them through their word, that is, through the apostles' word, therein, therein lies the desire of the Lord for unity among His people. So there was prayer for unity. God purposed unity among the early church, didn't He? Matter of fact, God was intent on bringing both Jews and Gentiles together into one body. So you got people from varying backgrounds coming together in this one body. In order for that unity to prevail, there had to be certain attitudes that would make for unity. So you had to plead with folks to be united in their efforts. Why? Well, you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12? Jesus would say, a kingdom divided against itself. He said, that kingdom can't stand. A house divided against itself. He said, that house can't stand. Now, the church is the household of God. And if the church is, is not united in her mission and in her message, then we got problems, don't we? So there has to be unity. And so there is this constant plea for unity. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you remember the Apostle Paul said that he had received a report from the household of Chloe that there were, as he would say, divisions among you. Some were saying, I'm, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Well, that wasn't a good thing, was it? And so Paul would say down in verse 10, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So to be united. And then there is the practice of unity. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks about demonstrating humility and gentleness, being long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And then in verse 3, he said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so God wants us to be united. You remember what the psalmist said, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. One of the reasons the early church was so successful, they were united in their mission together. We have a common cause here, don't we? We all have the same goal. That goal is to go to heaven. And in going to heaven, we're trying to take as many people with us as humanly possible. 
That's why we share the gospel of Christ. So we talk about the fact that they were united in their mission, but also in their message. Go back and read the epistles of the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote probably 13 New Testament epistles. Paul didn't preach one thing to the church at Colossae, another thing to the church at Ephesus, another thing to the church at Philippi. No, he taught the same thing in every church, as he would say to the church at Corinth. So they had a cohesive message, didn't they? Do we have a message that will resonate in the hearts and lives of people? I think we do. Matter of fact, I think we have the greatest message known to man. It's the gospel of Christ. It is a message that brings about liberation. It is a message that provides us with a couple of thoughts, a couple of things. Number one, to enjoy salvation from sin. And then number two, security. Those are two things that people need, don't they? Well, imagine that you, like myself, surprised this week at the tragic death of Lisa Marie Presley. And I was reading about her life the last couple of days, just reading some of the things that have been said about her. It's sad that here was somebody that enjoyed the trappings of fame and fortune in many respects. But as I began to read about her life, and I, I think about her father, the fact that her father died at an early age of 42 years. She lost a son about three years ago to suicide. One of the things that people said, she never really recovered from that. And she talked about the grief that she was trying to bear and how that grief never goes away. I understand that. But I thought about, you know, there are a lot of people in our world today, they have everything that we could ever imagine. They've got fame and fortune. I mean, they've got all the things that anybody would humanly want, but in many cases, they don't have what they really need, that sense of security, of belonging. There's a void that I believe is in the heart of every person. And that void can only be filled by the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we preach the gospel of Christ to people who are lost and dying of, in sin, it is a message of hope. It's a message of help. I mean, you think about the world that we live in at best is tough, isn't it? Remember what Job said, man born of woman is a few days full of trouble? Life's tough. And I know that we talk a lot in our world about trying to, trying to provide equality for people. But the fact of the matter is, life isn't fair. And in terms of equality, I mean, we all have different talents or abilities. You know, some, some are rich, some are poor, some are educated, some are uneducated. I mean, the idea of equality the bottom line is it does not exist in the world in which we live. And so the only hope that we have for genuine peace and happiness, it's in Christ. He's the one that can fill the void, can He? He's the one that can provide help and hope in times of darkness. 
And so when we face adversity, when we face trouble and trial, to know that God's people have our back. You know, I'm very grateful for the church here at Olive Branch. When Nancy was going through cancer and going through treatment after treatment after treatment, and I could see the toil that it took on her body, and it wears on you, not just physically, but also mentally. But I can tell you this, you just wouldn't believe the number of cards that we received in the mail. You wouldn't believe the people that would say, we're praying for you. People that I've never met. When I would meet them for the first time, they'd ask about it and they'd say, we're praying for you. Never met them in my life. But it says something about God's people, doesn't it? And so to know that we are a part of a common cause, that we can be united, that we can be united in our mission efforts together, the message that we share is a message of hope. It's a message of help to a lost and dying world. And to give people that peace that comes by being saved through obeying the gospel and the security that is a result of that to know that in Christ we live in hope of life eternal which God who cannot lie promised before time began. Now there's a second thing I want to share with you. A second very important ingredient. First we talk about the unification of the church but then secondly, let's just talk for a minute or two about the proclamation of the church. Now there are two things that I think really stand out. Number one, the focus of Christianity. Well, that'd be Jesus, wouldn't it? And then secondly, the foundation of Christianity. What's the foundation of Christianity? The resurrection of Christ. So listen to what Luke says. Look at verse 33. In Acts 4, verse 33, the record says, With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I want to encourage you over the next few days, go back and look at the book of Acts. And note how often it was said of the apostles and those in the early church, note the emphasis of their preaching and teaching. It all centered around one person, Jesus of Nazareth. Go back and look with me, if you would, at Acts chapter 2. Note, if you would, verse 22, or ver, rather, ver, yeah, verse 22. Listen to what Peter said. Men of Israel, hear these words. Now note, Jesus of Nazareth, there it is, a man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Who were they preaching? Jesus. Turn over now and look at chapter 3. In chapter 3, Peter, of course, provides a narration of God's redemptive story. And note, if you would, in verse 14, to the Jewish leaders, he said, you denied the Holy One, the just, and asked for a murder to be granted to you, 
and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And His name, whose name? The name of Christ. Drop down, look if you would, at verse 22. Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. It shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as were spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up His servant, listen to Him, His servant Jesus. Look at chapter 4. Again, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Back up and look at chapter 4. And note if you would in verse 2. They preached in Jesus. Note over in chapter 8 very quickly. Look at Acts chapter 8. The Bible says in verse 4, those who had been scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the Word. Who do you think they were talking about? They were talking about Christ, weren't they? Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached whom? Preached Christ. Jesus, the focus of the Christian religion. But not just the focus, but also the foundation. That is, everything by way of Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Christ. Now, we talk about emphasis on Jesus. And certainly, the New Testament points people in the direction of Christ. But I want you to think about the power of the resurrection. Go back with me now and look at Acts chapter 1 for a minute. You remember in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that over a period of 40 days, that Jesus presented Himself alive by many infallible proofs in other words, they had the opportunity to see firsthand the risen Savior, didn't they? Was that significant? Yes, it was. Well, why? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you remember when Paul summed up the gospel? Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, buried, raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. That being said, look over now in Acts chapter 2. We mentioned a moment ago Peter pointing out that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was a man that had been approved of God among them by miracles, wonders, and signs. They knew about that. But note, if you would, what is said. Verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined counsel, foreknowledge of God, He said, You've taken by lawless hands and crucified and slain. Look at verse 24, Whom God raised up. What, what, did, what did Peter say? God raised Him from the dead, didn't He? Drop down, look at verse, look if you would, at verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. He's both dead, buried, tomb was with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that of the fruit of his body, according to, to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, listen to him, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. His soul was not left in Hades, neither did his flesh see corruption. Turn over chapter 3 again. In chapter 3, P 
Peter said, you killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. Drop down, look at verse 26. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus. There's a constant theme there, isn't, isn't there? Look at chapter 4. In chapter 4, the Bible talks about the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they were greatly disturbed. Verse 2. Why? Because they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So how important is the resurrection to us today? Well, Peter said we have a living hope. The basis for that living hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 1 Peter chapter 1. And because of that, he said, we have a home prepared for us in heaven. Matter of fact, we have an inheritance. It's incorruptible, undefiled, fades not away. He says, reserved for you, where? In heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when the apostle Paul talks about those eyewitnesses, they had seen the Lord, they heard Him, they touched Him. Some even ate with Him. And you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul asked a question about the significance of the resurrected Christ. And basically he said, look, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, our preaching is, is futile. Our faith is vain. Really, we're still in sin. And he said, if in this life only we have faith in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable, miserable. So are you saying then that the resurrection is a very important factor in the grand scheme of things? Absolutely. Matter of fact, Christianity stands or falls on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus. So what were they doing in the first century? They're preaching the resurrected Christ. Now the enemies of Christ, they couldn't produce a body. Why? Because that body had been raised from the dead. And had they been able to do so, you better believe they would have done that. Because they wanted to stop Christianity, but they couldn't do that. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He was and He is the focus of the gospel. And then when we talk about the foundation of the gospel, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And listen, it will apply to all of us because we will all one day die, won't we? Unless the Lord comes first. But to know that even if we die, and our body resides in the cemetery, Jesus said, I have the keys to the cemetery. He said, I've got the keys to death and Hades. And listen, one day He's going to unlock the doors of the cemetery and all that are in the grave shall come forth. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So we talk about the success of the early church. It was rooted or grounded in Viable facts. Number one, the unification of the church. Number two, the proclamation of the church. And listen, they had a message that they could sell to a lost and dying world. You talk about an evil empire, the Roman Empire. I went back and did some reading on the Roman Empire the other day. You just wouldn't believe how corrupt and vile that empire was. And yet, it served as a cradle to Christianity and to the growth of the church. Because God had said through the prophet Daniel, in the days of these kings, that is in the days of the Roman kings, God's going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will stand forever. 
When the Lord Jesus comes, you know what He's going to do with that kingdom? Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, He's going to deliver it up to the Father. So one day we'll be together in heaven. Now, there is a third ingredient. So look at our text again. First, the unification of the church. Secondly, the proclamation of the church. Thirdly, the ministration of the church. Let's go back and look at verse 32 again. Luke said, The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Now note, Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Look at verse 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Then, of course, Luke brings up a fellow by the name of Barnabas who had land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There are two things, again, that stand out about the ministration of the church. Number one, they cared about one another. Number two, they shared with one another. So, having said that, let's go back and look at chapter 2 very quickly. Note if you would in, cha in chapter 2, in verse 42. Listen to what Luke said about the early church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now look at verse 44. All who believed were together. Now we talk about the unity of the early church. If you want a good definition of fellowship, here it is. All who believed were together. Down in verse 46, another definition. Continuing daily with one accord. But look again at verse 44. All who believed were together, had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their bread with gladness and simplicity of heart. So I raise this question. Where did they learn to care about one another? Where do you think they learned that? I think they learned it from Jesus, don't you? This morning we talked about Jesus and the influence that He exerted on the apostles and the people in the first century. You know, there are a lot of things that we could say about Jesus, but one thing really stands out. He genuinely cared about people. I don't think it's by accident that Peter, under, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, at verse 7, to cast all your care on Him. And the reason is, he said, He cares for you. The Lord cared for people in the first century. He cares for people in the 21st century, doesn't He? Again, listen, if you would, to what Luke records about Jesus. The Bible says He went about doing good. It was Jesus who said... It's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus was a giver. He cared about people. And I have no doubt the church here at Olive Branch has many, many good qualities and virtues. But one of the things that really stands out is the fact that, from my estimation, we care about one another. 
We really do. We genuinely care about the well-being of every person. That means a lot, doesn't it? Now you can read about the care that they had for one another. And listen, not only did they care for one another, but they were willing to share with one another. I can't tell you how many gift cards we received when Nancy was sick back a year or so ago. I mean, you just wouldn't believe the gift cards to go out and to just buy dinner, buy lunch. People so thoughtful, so kind. And I want to just take a minute and just share something with you. I, I know sometimes tender-hearted people get discouraged when we talk about the work of the church and sometimes tender-hearted people feel like they can't do enough. You know, in Mark 14, the Bible talks about that lady at the house of Simon who broke that alabaster flask and poured costly oil on the Lord. And you remember, she was chided for that, wasn't she? And Jesus said, let her alone. She's done a good work for me. But then he said this, she has done what she could. I want you to, when you leave tonight, I want you to think about one thing. That is, if you're doing your best, leave here with your head held high and know that God's pleased with you. You know, we're not perfect. And, you know, when we talk about being involved and doing things in the work of the church, sometimes tenderhearted folks feel bad because they don't feel like they've done enough. Well, the people I'm trying to reach are the people that need to be more involved. And so to encourage, look, when you prepare meals and send cards and text and take people to the doctor and a host of other things, do you not think the Lord knows that? He knows your heart. He knows you're doing what you can do. There are a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that nobody will ever know about. Don't need to know about it. It's not about personal glory or adulation. Why do you do what you do? You do it because you love the Lord, don't you? You do it because you want to do what you can, where you can, when you can, as long as you can. That's what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? That's why Paul would write in Romans chapter 12, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Why Paul would say, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's why Paul would say, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. Is that what they were doing in the first century? Yes. Does it make a difference? I promise you it does. I have no idea all the things that you do behind the scenes, but I can tell you this, I appreciate it. From the bottom of my heart, I want you to know I appreciate you. Thank you. And I know the elders appreciate you. And they're grateful for what you do. And please do not think for a minute that what you're doing is not appreciated, because it is. And when it's all said and done, as the Lord said, 
about that lady that broke that alabaster flask. She's done what she could. That's all the Lord asks for many of us to do what we can do. We talked about talents and abilities and the varying abilities that we have versus the talents God gives us. God doesn't expect more from you than what you can do. And I'm grateful to God that I'm not going to be judged on the basis of what somebody else does. Rather, I'm going to be judged on the basis of what I can do. My own limited abilities, God will judge me on that basis. So, the early church. You want to talk about a growing entity? You want to talk about a train that left the station full bore? That's a church. And there were some reasons why the early church grew. And listen, if we could capture the spirit that they had in the first century, if somehow we could bottle that spirit today, we can be just as successful as they were, can't we? When that seed falls on honest and good heart, hearts, it always produces fruit. Matter of fact, Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 55, the Word of God does not return to him void. I believe that. Do you? So, Acts chapter 4, really a great commentary on the first century church. And you can see through your study of the scriptures, the early church was an incredible institution. 2,000 years later, it's still an incredible institution. You know why? Because it was bought with the blood of Jesus. It belongs to Him. And if we belong to God, that means that one day we'll all be together in heaven, won't we? So, all I can say is let's just press on. Keep pushing forward. And to all the good things that are going on Monday night for the Master and other things, thank you. God bless you for your work. Let's do everything that we can to make 2023 a great, great year for the cause of Christ. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, could I encourage you to come to Christ believing that Jesus is the Son of God? I know you believe that. So my question tonight would be, if you believe that He is the Son of God and you haven't obeyed the gospel, would you do that tonight? Would you be willing to put the Lord on in baptism? To enjoy the cleansing power of the blood of Christ, Ephesians 1, 7. To be baptized into Christ, let Him add you to the body of Christ, and then go to work. Go out and teach somebody else what you just did. Talk to them about the love of God and the hope of salvation. If you're here tonight and you need to respond to heaven's invitation, maybe you need the prayers of the church. Could we pray with you and for you as we stand and sing?